I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful now, our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Touch Em All podcast, the first official off-season episode with Derek Wetmore and myself, Phil Mackey, because the Twins, obviously, a couple days ago, uh, fell in the one-game wild card against the Yankees. Let me ask you this, Derek. So you were at the game, and you were covering it for 1500ESPN.com and also for the Touch em All podcast. When the Twins were up 3 to nothing after about 10 minutes, and they had runners on second and third with one out, and Luis Severino was chased from the game, did you think they were winning that game at that time? I know you give me the non, there's a non-zero chance that the Yankees would come back and win, but... I mean, I, Doogie and I were watching that game together before doing Twins Rap, and we both looked at each other and said, holy crap, they're ambushing Luis Severino. They're winning this game, aren't they? And then, of course, 10 minutes later, bombs away. Yeah, I really did. I was sitting in the press box. I don't know if I was one of the only ones who felt that way because because after the game and, you know, there were a few innings there where it was – it kind of decided, but even then, Phil, there were people that were like, oh, I'm writing my story, you know, I'm just going to get a head start, and boy, a tough break for the Twins, but this is kind of the way you saw it going, and I'm like, well, yeah, it's what, it's, I mean, yeah, I saw the bullpen sort of taking over, and if it turns into a battle of the bullpens, it's kind of all she wrote for the Twins, but... I'd seen this team come back too many times this year that I wasn't ready to start writing. Actually, for the first time this year, Phil, I, I did a five thoughts column off the game, and I did not have one word written by the time the final out was recorded because I was just so glued to that game that even late in you know the later innings, I couldn't bring myself to like pay half attention to the game so I could start writing. I, I really thought that the Twins had a shot even down to the final inning against Chapman. Yeah, and and I and I would say that if I'm ranking the 25 guys on that roster in order of how nervous do I think this guy is going to be or or how unlikely is it that this particular player is going to be able to handle the moment and the pressure and the bright lights of New York and in all the things that go into that one game wildcard playoff. Irvin Santana would have been the last guy I <laughs> yeah. pegged to succumb to the pressure or to not rise above uh, and and at least answer the bell and do his job. I mean, that was a garbage performance by Irvin Santana. It's just there's really there's really no way to sugarcoat what happened to him on that mound. And once they took a three nothing lead, and even when they left a couple runners on base and and Chad Green came in and put out that fire, Irvin Santana, the blueprint was there for the Twins. And it's not like they needed eight shutout innings from him. If he would have gone either five or six innings and given up two or three runs and then handed off to a couple reliable bullpen members, they probably win that game, you know, eight times out of ten if if, if the game flow is different in those early innings. But, uh, you know, when he couldn't get a slider across, he went full counts to eight out of the first 11 batters. And, and, you know, credit to him because they wouldn't be – in that game to begin with, if not for his great performances right. in the regular season. And I absolutely think they should bring him back and put him in the rotation for next year. I, I'm not hesitating there at all, but 
my opinion of Urban Santana is not as high today as it was 72 hours ago as a pitcher. Yeah, and I think that's a fair way to look at it. I've got two responses to this. One's sort of in defense of Urban Santana. Actually, they both kind of are. Uh, I do question the, have we just put a narrative on this thing that says, well, he couldn't, you know, he, he didn't handle the pressure, whereas it was a short start of the year. Part of that is because of the stakes. You just couldn't keep throwing him out there in a game that you had to win, whereas I think if that game's on July 1st, he's probably allowed to right the ship and go five, maybe six innings. We've seen a couple starts like that from him this year. But, like, is it pressure or is it just, well, he didn't have fastball command and the slider wasn't sharp? I've never been able to figure out, you know, exactly what the predictors are of, will you have your pitches today? Because we hear it all the time from guys, especially Santana. And, and it was a big thing for Barreos this year, too, a big point of emphasis. All right, well, when I've got my best stuff, I'm feeling pretty good out there. I'm a rock star. Uh, but when I don't, I've got to still find a way to get through six innings without giving up 11 runs and just keep my team in the game even if I only have, say, two pitches in Santana's case. So I'm just trying to figure out how much are we blaming on the pressure of New York and how much is it, boy, he just didn't have good stuff. He was getting squeezed a little bit, just a little bit, and the Yankees just have a good lineup. I, I guess I just don't know which way to split that hair. Yeah, I guess I think I. I mean, yeah, it wasn't that it wasn't that he was. Obviously, some of it was just he didn't have a feel for his slider, or yeah. uh, or didn't have a feel for some of his fastballs. But when you're going, when you're just unable to throw strikes, and you walk the right. first batter out of the gate. Um, and you're just incapable of throwing a ball over the plate or unwilling to throw a ball over the plate knowing that you don't have your best stuff. Right. All, all of it, to me, left a bad taste in my mouth. And, again, there's like I'm not going to do anything differently if I were Paul Molitor or Derek Falvey or Thad Levine with him. He's going in the rotation next year. Sure. And he's probably, if, if you get to the playoffs again, he's probably one of your playoff rotation starters. And so you just have to run him out there again. But it's worth noting... He has an ERA over six now in the postseason, and his three starts have all been pretty disastrous. Not quite that disastrous, but uh, yeah. he hasn't fared well in any of his starts. And I and I guess the more I think about, and this is all narrative, like I don't, I don't have. It's it's impossible to quantify this. But if I could go back and rethink the psychology of the lead up to that game, Irvin Santana had more to lose than almost every other player on the Twins roster. 34 years old, had never won a game in Yankee Stadium, and that got brought up in the press conferences the day before, and he even kind of made the the soft guarantee that, well, then I guess Tuesday is going to be my first. Um, The fact that he hadn't performed well in the postseason before, I think he probably put a lot of undue pressure on himself that, hey, I'm the leader of the staff. It's my job to shut down this lineup. I've never won a game here. I've never really pitched well in the postseason, so... How many times am I going to you know, be back in this situation? And again, I'm I'm, I'm just I'm just speculating on all of this, but sure. all of it adds up for him to be a little bit tighter than other players like Eddie Rosario and Max Kepler, and a lineup that came completely poised and ready to roll with no pressure, taking great at bats, and just sort of basking in their first playoff moment. It almost felt like Irvin Santana was a little bit too wound up or just a little bit too caught up in the fact that he had to perform well in that game. And it could and, be. And, and he didn't. 
Yeah. Oh, we're, you're not going to catch an argument from me on that last point. He did not perform well. The Twins needed better for them to have a any reasonable chance of winning. But, like, let's rewind it two weeks. Are you saying that we should have made the case for somebody else to no. maybe make that start? No. Nope. Even if I had known okay. all of those things yeah, he's two, still the two guy. weeks in advance, he's still the star. I, I even heard there was a couple guys who called in on Twins Rap after the game and suggested because Yankee Stadium is such a bandbox ballpark and you're facing a lineup of power hitters, and Irvin Santana is a notorious flyball pitcher, should you have gone with ground ball pitcher Kyle Gibson? And to that I say, if you had the grapefruits to start Kyle Gibson over Jose Barrios (laughs) and Irvin Santana, and it doesn't pay off, all of you are bringing boxes to clear out your cubicles, even though you haven't been here. Derek Falvey, Thad Levine, uh, you know, it's... I, I I understand the logic. If you had a great ground ball pitcher, would that have been better strategically? Maybe, but there's no way you're starting in that game anyone no. other than Irvin Santana. No, right. And to me, uh, one of my other points from earlier is that there was an at-bat that I think was the most indicative of his struggles that night, and it was the Brett Gardner at-bat, the home run. So just to start off, I actually, while you were talking there, I pulled up the, you know, the pitch effects from MLB.com just so I can make sure that I remembered this correctly because I always remember things wrong. And, uh, I did not want to do that to our listeners. So the Brett Gardner at bat, it was a seven pitch at bat. And as you remember, Phil, it ended in a home run and it ended in a home run that, uh, got Irvin chirped at a little bit. I think Gardner hit it. He took a second to watch it, set his bat down. And I, he was either staring him down or barking on his way to first he base. Was, I couldn't he he, he stared him box. down twice. Yeah, he stared yeah. him down twice. So first pitch, it was an outside fastball and it missed. Um, I'm looking at the pitch effects here, and it's like right on the black. It should be a strike, but I'm not going to defend it. Like that was the strike zone that night. It was the strike zone for everybody. It was the strike zone for every Yankees reliever that didn't seem to have any problem racking up K's against the Twins. So gets squeezed, maybe, and then he's in the strike zone a little bit, winds up it's a 2-2 count, and then he throws that fastball that almost buzzed Gardner. And I don't know if he was going inside to brush him off the plate or he was trying to get that fastball over the inner third of the plate. But either way, it was a non-effective pitch. It wasn't going to get a swing. Worst-case scenario, it was going to hit Gardner and put him on base for free. Best case scenario, it misses him. Uh, maybe it gets in his head a little bit or gets him moving his feet and sets up a slider. Well, that didn't happen because the next pitch was a middle-middle fastball, and Gardner knew exactly what to do with it. And to me, that was just sort of emblematic of the day that that Irvin had. I mean, I still count on him. I still think it was the right decision to have him make that start. I think 10 times out of 10, you're making that call if you're the Twins the last thing I'll say before we stop ragging on the guy who had the best season for the Twins this right. year, yeah, that's is that. <laughs> I mean, true. that's the funny thing about it, right? It We're, is. Like, obviously, he didn't have a good start, and the Twins had a chance probably to be playing Cleveland right now, and looks like Cleveland might have steamrolled them anyways, but that doesn't matter. Uh, it's still, it's the kind of thing that we have to analyze, that we have to look back and say, well, could it have been different? And this is a column, and this is not to rip on Jim Suhan. He's been doing a lot of uh, work covering the Twins the last couple of weeks and months. I've got a lot of respect for the stuff that he's been putting together. He wrote a column, though, that I completely disagree with its premise. He, he wrote that you know Irvin Stark calls into question whether or not he's an ace, whether or not you want him in that role with the Twins, and you know basically just like 
casts doubt upon his future in Minnesota. And to that I would say, if you were counting on Irvin, San- Irvin Santana to be like an ace, like a Clayton Kershaw, Corey Kluber type ace, then that's on you. That's not on Irvin Santana. He's Correct. not that guy. He's not paid to be that guy. If he was, for example, the second best starter in rotation behind, let's just say, Corey Kluber, well, we think about Irvin Santana a lot differently. And suddenly, oh, he's a nice number two guy. You want him starting game two of the division series. As it turns out, the Twins' next best pitcher is Boreos, and you wouldn't have trusted him in that big game necessarily because he's a young guy, first good season in the big leagues. Nerves have probably been a little bit of a problem in the past. So the only thing that I was, I guess I took exception with is that if you're saying that that start proves that Irvin Santana's not an ace. I would say you didn't need that start to know that Santana's not an ace. He's just the Twins' best pitcher. And now I would say that it's on the Twins this winter to either go get somebody better than Santana or at the very least build out the depth of the rotation so you've got multiple number twos and threes rather than trying to get through a season wondering who your four and five are going to be. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. He's He's not an ace. And it didn't take that start to prove one way or the other that he was or wasn't an ace. I mean, look at look at some of the other pitchers you're going to see here over the next two or three weeks in the playoffs. Corey Kluber, Chris Sale, and Justin Verlander pitched against each other today. And actually, Chris Sale got it handed to him by a really good lineup. Um, Zach Greinke only made it four innings. Does that prove that he's not an ace? So I, these Zach Greinke's a far better pitcher than Irvin Santana. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I just I disagree with the premise too that. That that game was the deciding factor for well, anyone who thought that. Like, because, he, wa- he wasn't an ace, period. Right. Like, here's the question. How many aces are there in baseball? The way Define it however you want to. Like, just, just estimate. You don't think, have to give me, like, a number or what is the cutoff, but just how many? I would say, like, 10. Like yeah, ten, sure. like ten Like, 10 guys, 10 to 15, where you'd say, yeah. okay, yeah, that – you're going to roll with that guy against uh, – the, the way I measure it up is how would I feel about pitcher – blank versus Chris Sale, right? Sure. Um, you know what, Justin Verlander, I feel okay with that matchup. So I think he's an ace. And then the numbers have to stack up. Clayton Kershaw, Corey Kluber, Max Scherzer. Yeah. I guess it's kind of the definition of equality for me is like if you had that guy on the mound against anybody else, would you trade with the other guys anybody else, if that makes sense? Would right. you go, you know, if you're if you've got Kershaw and they're starting Kluber, well, Okay, I'm not trading you. Whoever, whichever side of that coin you're on, you feel good with your guy. But if you've got Irvin Santana against Chris Sale, uh, you feel okay. But it's like if I had my choice, boy, I'd rather have Chris Sale. Right. So there's maybe 15 of those guys, and the Twins. I'm not sure they'd be able to get one this off season. That's another podcast for another day. But that to me is like you got to go in with the framework, knowing that Irvin's like a good number three who had a good year again this year and happens to be the number one on the twin staff. Yeah. So that's my last bit on that. Um, here's a an on-air or on-show production meeting. Should we do our big Miguel Snow podcast? We've, we're already pretty deep into the twins' uh, autopsy here from, from the wildcard game. Should we also stack the Miguel Snow podcast into this one, or should we make our beloved audience wait until maybe next week before we dive well, in. I mean, I don't know if they uh, I don't know if they can handle that. I don't know if they could stomach uh, sitting around and waiting. But I will say that as a listener of like other podcasts, it kind of annoys me 
when we dive into four or five different topics. So maybe people just want a standalone Sano episode, and that would be for another day, in my opinion. I, I think we should do that. Yes. I'm kind of rolling. So here's kind of my plan. As long as we're still just doing this production meeting, I think that we're going to get some kind of news in the next couple of days. So we, we can do a podcast reacting to that stuff, but we don't know exactly what it is right now. So maybe a couple, maybe keep just, I know people probably, maybe you're tired of talking about the game, but I also think it's therapeutic to get through like, oh, what could have gone differently? Or like now that this twins team really seems like it's on the rise, uh, you know, what were some performances that stood out to you right. that are encouraging for next year or that, you know, need to be corrected for next year. I think we just stay on that thread and hit a couple of these other podcasts. Maybe we still do two more podcasts in the next couple of days just to uh, yeah. keep the keep the feed as fresh as possible. Okay. So we, we're going to have, we're probably going to have, by the time people listen to this, there might be Paul Molitor news one way or the other. And so, sure. uh, okay. So there, so on air production meeting is over. That was very productive. And <laughs> I, and, and, and since we're going to go back to the game, I think something happened in the game that we knew was going to happen, but it just, as it was laid out to all of us who follow the twins, it just made something very much more clear, which I want to highlight for you in just a second. But, uh, Luther Brookdale Toyota is one of the main sponsors of our podcast network, and they've been powering our content for uh, several months now on the podcast network and several years on 1500 ESPN and the Mackie and Judd show. So we thank them, and my family thanks them for 30-plus years of family-like service and uh, some of the best expertise and the most caring people you're going to find in the business. I'm telling you, I know for people who live in the metro area, Twin Cities, there are countless car dealerships in the service departments that you drive by on a regular basis, and I don't take that for granted. But there's a reason why my family and I continue to go to the same place year after year, car after car, generation after generation. Just find out for yourself. Just go in, tell them Phil Mackey sent you, and uh, and go meet Paula and Tony and Badu and everybody else in the showroom area and Steve and Dwayne and Jeremy and all the guys that uh, we've been working with for a long time. Luther Brookdale Toyota, 694 Brooklyn Boulevard, and LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. So we knew, Derek, that the Yankees at some point, whether it started in the seventh inning or whether it started in the first inning, we're going to roll out the best bullpen bridge in the major leagues. And maybe yeah. the best bullpen bridge in terms of strikeout power and Araldus Chapman, who's probably going to go down as a Hall of Famer, it might be a historically great bullpen by the time... It's all said and done, and I believe they're all under contract for next year, so it's going to stay together, and it, and, it, and it might be up there with the Cincinnati Reds bullpen from the early 1990s. Uh, I, I think if they win a World Series, it'll go down in history for sure, but remains to be seen. When you saw the Yankees bullpen inning after inning, and you saw every pitcher throwing like 99 to 101 miles an hour or more for Araldis, it just highlighted how far the Twins are away from competing in that particular arms race. I didn't think the Twins lineup was overmatched. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't think the Twins rotation is vastly overmatched, except it was in that game. Santana got rocked. I mean, Barrios is good. Irvin Santana's good. You can add another starter. You're a little bit closer in that regard. But if you ranked every reliever on both rosters that you saw either in the game or just on paper, if you ranked all the relievers, one through whatever, I think it would take you six or seven pitchers before you got to a twin. I think you would take everyone who entered the game for the Yankees 
and probably two or three more guys who didn't, including Dellen Batansis with the control problems, and Adam Warren before you'd get to, in my mind, Trevor Hildenberger is the best Twins reliever on that roster. And mm-hmm. and that's it's not only is it a testament to how great the Yankees' bullpen is, but it shows you the Twins have a lot of work to do this offseason. Yeah, it's cu- I'm curious about a couple things here. And it comes to roster construction because I mentioned this. I, I was on the air with Royce the other day, and I mentioned that uh, this isn't new. Um, Pat was talking about this Super Bowl pen that they built, and boy, how, how are you going to contend with it? Um, his point was they really loaded up on the trade deadline and good for Cashman. And I'll get to that in a second because, yes, he's right. But this isn't the first team that we've set, seen go, oh, you mean we could make it a five-inning game, and if we have a lead, it's over? Oh, that was they, the they, blueprint. They made it a, They literally made it a nine-inning bullpen bridge in that, right, in I, that contest. I, Severino gets one out, the Twins score three runs, and Wetmore sitting in the press box planning his trip to Cleveland, and then the bullpen happened. And, uh, and well, and Irvin happened. Both, that was a little bit more unexpected. But, you know, this was the blueprint of the Indians last year. Yeah, they had some good starting pitching behind one of the best pitchers in baseball, Corey Kluber, um, Bauer, hit or miss. Josh Tomlin had some good starts last year. But don't forget, they were out without Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar, and they marched all the way to Game 7 of the World Series and, you know, could have won the thing. That that was based largely on tremendous work from guys like Cody Allen and Shaw and Andrew Miller. Like, that changed the dynamic of every series that they were a part of, including the World Series. And they're not the first team either because you fast or you rewind the season before that, the Kansas City Royals won the World Series with their – you know, lights out bullpen, and they got to the World Series the year before that, based largely on the same merits. Now, I don't know what's going to happen here because I could see it going one of two ways. If you think about it in economic terms, teams are now saying, oh, okay, interesting. Well, if we're going to beat these super teams, what we need to do is have like seven really good relievers. And if the only way I can get really good relievers is to sign them as a free agent, because I don't have the, I don't have Dellen Batanzas in my system. I don't have Chad Green in my system. Maybe I got one of them, but I don't have six. Well, you're going to have to go pay on the free agent market or pay a high price in a trade. So here's my question. Is it just going to keep going up and up and up and up, and teams are just going to pay through the nose to get a guy like Wade Davis? Or... Is this a bubble? Is this the kind of thing that, like, it might work for the Yankees or they might get bounced and, boy, they paid a lot to get those relievers and, man, they gave up some prospects at the deadline. And it's just so much of a crapshoot that it really does just keep coming back to who's your starter, who's your starter. I I don't know which way it's going to veer, but I sort of have a feeling it's going to veer towards relievers are about to start getting paid, and I mean paid to be these back-end, like, oh, all right, ninth inning starts, that guy's in, you've got a not even a non-zero chance to score. You've got zero chance to score with this guy in the game right now, and if you can multiply that by four or by five, boy, that doesn't only change the dynamic of a game, a one-game playoff like the wild card game. It changes the dynamic of a seven-game series. Yeah, so, well, I, I think, you know, and we're going to do a lot more on, what, on specific names and blueprints for the Twins this offseason, but, you know, just in general... Hector Santiago comes off the books, and, and, and he has an $8 million tag on, on his name from, from the 2017 season. 
I think spending $8 million on a mediocre number four or number five starter is not a great way to go about budgeting your your payroll in 2017. I think maybe at a time, allocating that kind of money and resources to a number four, number five starter made some sense. But I would feel much more comfortable with a $500,000 Felix Jorge or Aaron Sleggers if I had to use somebody else in that number five spot and then spend the $8 million on like Addison Reed to come in and throw throw 75 times and 75 innings or or 70 innings and have 12 strikeouts per nine or or whatever his strikeout rate is. Um, Like that's the direction that baseball is going in. And sometimes I would say, you know, if, if, if we're getting too close to a bubble, maybe when most teams are zigging, you should zag. I still think loading up on bullpen arms is the right strategy for now. Um, especially when you don't really have any. And one other thing to note too, on the twins, whether they do, whether they figure this out through the bullpen internally, uh, free agents, starters, whatever it may be, strikeouts matter missing bats absolutely matters and the twins in 2017 finished last in average fastball velocity 29th in strikeout rate 28th in swinging strikes and i have a list in front of me of the top strikeout pitching staffs in the major leagues for this year and i'm going to go in order from top on the all the way down indians astros Yankees, Dodgers, Red Sox, Diamondbacks, Nationals, Cubs. <laughs> the eight teams still standing. Amazing. The top strikeout pitching staffs. I didn't say lineup. I didn't say defense. I didn't say manager. I didn't say anything. I just gave you the top strikeout pitching staffs in baseball, and it's the eight teams that are still left right now. In case you're Uh, wondering if that correlates to winning, it does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a fraction of a percentage chance that that's a random and and not correlated. But I think I'm I'm not even going to bring up that possibility. (laughs) I'm just curious where do the Rockies? Because it's it's amazing to me that given that list, that the Twins at the bottom still got in. Like that's a credit to the rest of their club. Their lineup was great. They played great defense. I think their manager is great. I'm curious, where do the Rockies fall? Because they, they went to the wild card too. Mid-pack, yeah, so, yep, 18th. So, I mean, and then they got bounced. You know, their starter couldn't really get anything going, John Gray. But uh, so I, I want to finish up on the point quick about the trade deadline because there were some people at the time that were like, I don't know that this was the popular opinion, but there were some people when the Yankees made the trade for two guys who pitched important innings in that game. In fact, you could make the case that they helped just as much as any one hitter. I'd put MVPs for that Yankees game, Didi Gregorius, then maybe Aaron Judge, but David Robertson has to be at or near the top of that list. Both he and Tommy Canely came over in a trade with the White Sox, and I'm curious to know, how much of that is, uh, you know, Ch- or uh, excuse me, Cashman being just willing to go gamble and say, hey, you know what? We've got a good run differential. we got a good club. I know we're not really in the picture right now, but if we get this bullpen and we can get there, th- that trade to me, Phil, I thought it was a stroke of genius at the time, just like I thought it was a stroke of genius to go get Aroldis Chapman when the Cubs did it. Uh, and Theo Epstein's quote at the time was something to the effect of, hey, opportunities to win a World Series are precious. 
we don't take that for granted. We're not going to just sit back and say, we've got a pretty good team, let's roll the dice. We're going to give up prospects that we think are going to be very good players, and we're going to try to go get a guy that can nail it down for us at the end. And, and I just thought that's such a cool philosophy. I, I am 100% on board with that. Cashman did the same thing this year, and the Yankees were not in the kind of dominant position that the Cubs were. But the trade to me reminded me of the times that when I was playing fantasy football, and I'd be like, I loved, my specialty was like, this was back when running backs mattered, but the the running back who would get hurt like in week two, somebody (laughs) drafted him in the top 10, and I was like, hey, I'll take him off your hands, because I was confident enough that I'd get my team there with just scrapping it together week after week. And then once I got to the playoffs, weeks you know, 13, 14, 15, that Steven Jackson was going to come back and put up 150 yeah. yards and two touchdowns. That was, to me, the Yankees' bullpen trade where they got Robertson and Canely. And now that they're here, they're a scary team. I know the Indians you know, showed them what's what uh, in game one, but I would not count them out of that series, and I think that the bullpen is a major reason why. So, uh, yes, and I know that the the next step to this is people asking, well, why wouldn't the Twins be in? If the Twins were in the mix for a playoff spot around the same time or maybe a couple weeks before the trade deadline, why wouldn't the Twins be kicking the tires on Tommy Canely and that whole package of players, David Robertson? And forget about the fact that maybe the White Sox wouldn't want to trade within their own division. I am really sick and tired of of – defending Derek Falvey and Thad Levine for their decision on July 31st. And I get that the Yankees went out and they added two arms that absolutely shoved against the Twins on Tuesday night, and the Twins subtracted their best bullpen arm. And of course that's why the gap between the bullpens was so wide in that game at Yankee Stadium. But I just want to reiterate, on July 31st, based on the information you had, Selling assets that were set to become free agents was absolutely the correct move, and trading Brandon Kinsler to me was absolutely the correct move. Unless, unless, and only unless, you thought a Twins team that was five games back in the wild card, several games below 500, and had Byron Buxton and Jorge Polanco as non factors offensively, and Kyle Gibson in AAA Rochester as a non factor, and struggling Brian Dozier. Unless you thought all of those things would turn around, not even like just a little bit, but would turn around to the point where Polanco, Buxton, and Dozier would be playing like MVPs in the final two months of the year, and every other team would bite the dust in September as the race was heating up. If you correctly predicted those things, I want you sitting next to me at every casino in the country, and we're going to go on a tour, and we're going to buy lottery tickets. Um, the, the, I think the analogy I used or the metaphor I used, and it's probably better for blackjack. And so I might just hand this one over to you halfway through. Um, (laughs) like I, I don't want a general manager who recklessly hits in certain blackjack situations that aren't profitable. You know, I, I mean, what, 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 if the twins would have traded off like Nick Gordon and other top prospects for that white Sox package of Todd Frazier and uh, David Robertson and Tommy Canley, let's say they sold off key pieces for the next five to six years to try and make a run back, you know, five games back in the wild card. And all right, let's, let's, let's make a charge at this thing. Yes. That wound up being you, you, that wound up being the correct move because obviously the twins came back and they made the playoffs and having those players would have helped them against the Yankees, but it was the 4%. And I don't want the general manager putting chips on the table with 4% success odds. 
Like I don't want I don't want him pushing all in with pocket twos when two other players at the table are all in and have been playing tight and you know they have kings and queens, right? So you can maybe you have a better blackjack analogy. You don't want to be hitting on sixteen all the time um, when when the dealer's showing fifteen, right? That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. When I can get to twenty one, like well, I mean that was probably a terrible blackjack reference because I don't really play yeah. blackjack. Yeah, but, I was gonna but, say, but you, you know what I'm saying. About, you started talking about blackjack, and then pocket twos came into the mix. And yeah, that's somebody more of a else poker, is yeah. sitting at the table playing kings and queens. Like, no, you guys are playing against the dealer. No, this, that was a poker, a poker reference. Uh, oh, I got it. All yeah, right, yeah. all right, all right. Yeah, but anyway, it's kind of funny that the third baseman component of that trade might have helped the Twins down the stretch too, eh? That's true. That's good foreshadowing too, because I think there's a scenario for a future episode where the Twins should consider trading Miguel Sano in the next couple of years. But okay. uh, that's a little I, teaser for a later episode. Yeah, I, I saw some of those tweets. People are asking me about that on my Facebook page. I think I saw you defending it on Twitter, and I've got a bone to pick with that take. So I think we usually agree, but it might be gloves off, boxing match, locker boxing on uh, whatever the next episode of the Touch em All podcast is. Because... I think that's a ridiculous notion to consider trading him this winter. So I guess let's put that on the list of talkers. Whatever happens with Paul Molitor and the coaching staff on the list of talkers, I also have about 10 or 11 names that I think the Twins should make phone calls on to help their pitching staff and bullpen in awesome. free agency. And so we can do that episode. And, yeah. uh, you know, we should also – let's throw this out for anyone still listening. If you're still listening to this episode, obviously you are huge fans of the Touch em All podcast, and we appreciate that. Or you have fallen asleep and uh, left your left your mobile device on and playing. But I think we should hold some uh, some gatherings this, this winter, just like whether it's sure. a, a World Series game or just get together to kick around some hot stove stuff. So if you – how should we maneuver this? Like, if you would be interested in hanging out with us and watching a World Series game or or watching the movie Major League with Derek for the first time because <laughs> he's never seen it. I wondered if you'd go there. That should be a gathering this offseason. Just send us a tweet at Derek Wetmore, at Phil Mackey, and tell us, yeah, I'm in. I'm in for Major League. I'm in for a World Series game somewhere in the Twin Cities. Yeah, awesome. And, uh... uh just to give it to people because I've seen a lot of tweets, a lot of Facebook stuff on this. I don't want to, I don't want to get through a full episode and not sort of uh, deliver on this question. Everyone asking what are their off season priorities? What are their off season? We'll obviously we'll do full episodes on this. I'll have tons of columns this winter. We'll talk about it. Basically I would say every week from now until like January. So like we're going to get there, but just as a general overview, and if, if you want to compete with the Indians next year, which I don't think you're there yet, but if you want to at least be in the same conversation, you need a, a top-line starter, and you need another good mid-rotation starter. Now, Trevor May could maybe take care of one of those, but I'm just saying you need two more pitchers. Uh, maybe Gonzalez adds to that, but two more. One of them has to come from outside the organization, and I think you also need – Two more back-end relievers. You can't go into this offseason like you have the last three years just crossing your fingers that the closer role would work out, whether it's Kevin Jepsen or Brandon Kinsler. You can't go into this winter and re-sign Matt Belisle to a one-year major league deal and say, we've got our closer situation figured out. I don't even think, as much of a Trevor Hildenberger fan as I am, I don't even think you can go into saying he's your ninth-inning guy next year. I think you've got to solve... Not only the rotation, especially at the top, 
but you also need at least two good arms that you trust late in game. So that's my general my general answer to that question. And then there are hundreds of ways we could go about answering that with specific names, trades, free agents, anything like that. Yeah, so, totally agree. So. Yeah, agree with everything and all all of your uh, your points there. And and I would add as a as just an open ended question that we won't have an answer to for at least a couple more months. We don't know what Derek Falvey and Thad Levine's approach will be in just in general with with overseeing a team, yeah. especially with a team that's on the verge of maybe some major contendership here. Will they be aggressive? I think a good sign for fans wondering, are they going to spend money? Are they going to are they going to push the envelope and be aggressive? They spent $8 million a year on a multi-year deal for a very borderline starting catcher in Jason Castro. I mean, Jason Castro is a good defensive catcher, but he's not a star catcher, and they deemed it very important right away in free agency last year to spend a lot of money on Castro. So I think that indicates if they identify positions of need, and they see somebody in free agency that they want, they're going to spend some money to go get that player. Mm, yeah, there's something to be said about that. They also think that market value is a pretty important thing to weigh, that, hey, if other people are undervaluing this guy compared to what we think he's worth, go get him. Um, I, I'm curious to see how that manifests on the uh, pitching side of things, specifically this winter. Hey, one thing before we say goodnight, Phil, um, we asked a little while ago to – at, you know, hey, send in your favorite obscure Twins fans as an iTunes review. Yes. You will not be surprised to learn that people took us up on that. I, <laughs> I got, skimmed through some of those. Yeah. <laughs> I, love I, our, I love our listeners. That's awesome. Yeah. So so thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who left an iTunes review last week. And uh, I, I there's some great comments here. I'll read them another time, but... Uh, we're probably way over our time limit, so I'll just give you some of the names of obscure Twins players that people liked. Uh, we got one, Caleb Thielbar. Wow. Uh, Siyoshi Nishioka, which I think is, like, ironic, of course. Um, shoot, who? I thought I just had a couple more. Lou Ford is on here. Paul Sorrento. Jason Bartlett. Paul Sorrento. Wow. Yeah, there's Pat Mears, Terry Mulholland. Bombo Rivera. People went really deep. That's just That's there's probably time. more. There's probably more that I you know that I can unearth and we'll get some more comments. But if anybody else has a has a you know a favorite, I I feel like we should have like playoff heroes because there's just been a lot of bad tastes recently. Although I suppose that if you're going playoff heroes, anyone that was born before I was is going to say Kirby Puckett. So it's not really a. Are there a fair really other than points. like AJ Pierzynski in 2002? Are there really any playoff heroes in our in our? If you're if you're born after like 1987, your playoff hero is AJ oh, Pierzynski hitting a home run against the Oakland A's because they haven't won a playoff series in 15 years. All right, so favorite playoff moment or fav- favorite like late season because I'd count game 163. So like if I'm talking about following uh, the Twins basically since oh nah 2000 is probably the first year that I like really remember. Uh, I would say the most like exciting moment ever would have been uh, game 163, Casilla driving home Gomez and the place just erupting. I still have a photo of that a large blown up photo um, on the wall of the target field clubhouse. And it's funny. You just see like Kadire going crazy and like people jumping up over the railings of the benches. It's funny to look back and think like, Oh yeah, that was a really exciting moment. And then 
oh, nothing happened that year. And I hope that's not how this year's remembered, but I almost kind of think that's that's sort of the way it is. Yeah, really exciting year. Yeah, good stuff. Oh, yeah, you lost to the Yankees. No, like, I, I think this is this was 2001, and in 2001, sure. the Twins would have been the second wildcard team, and they would have played a 100-win A's team in that coin flip game because sure. the Seattle Mariners won the West with 116 wins. So you would have had a 16-win gap between the wildcard teams in 2001 if if that format existed. And so I really think this is the start of a multi-year run of whether it's playoff appearances with the wildcard or division championships. And you have to hope as a Twins fan that this time around they do better than just one series victory yeah. with this generation of Twins players. So we'll leave it at this. Are you predicting postseason next year, Phil? Right now, I'd have to say yes, but they have to improve their bullpen and, like you said, add a couple starters. But I think they do yeah. that, and yeah. uh, and I and I think I think they are. I think this is a multi-year playoff stretch. Sure, yep. you think so Hard too? Same. Hard same. I think there are high eighties wins next year, uh, which is a crazy call to make on October fifth, um, not knowing any of the moves they make this off season. But I just see. Without rose-tinted glasses on, I see multiple guys having step forwards, guys who had a big year this year and were a big reason. I don't see a whole lot of regression there. Maybe the veterans, but I think that uh, you add Sano back into this mix, get a couple of arms, and uh, this is bound to be a pretty good team for the next couple of years at a minimum. Do you think this podcast improves next year like the Twins are going to improve? That's a hard negatron. I think that uh, we're going to continue to make references to Terry Mulholland and Pat Mears and have stories that stretch on far beyond anyone's attention span. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is here, and so is Mountain Dew. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait. What rewards? A Dew Operator Skin. Man, I love Operator Skins. Dual double XP, and even Call of Duty points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. This... Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. Call of Duty points available on 12 